0: Welcome to this Fortnite CC broadcast. This week we're just touching base on a few things, so it'll be a slightly shorter one than normal. After a few weeks of panelling member applicants, the party is welcoming over 20 new members. We're really excited to have them all coming on board, so a very warm welcome. For this broadcast, I want to talk a little bit about criticism in the party. It's an essential part of how we improve Red Fight Pack. Through criticism, we're able to get better at what we do. At its heart, the purpose of criticism is to separate ideas that serve the capitalist class, ideas that serve the working class, so that comrades can unite around these correct ideas. In the Tri-Continental Congress in Havana in 1966, Cabral stated that criticism is the struggle against our own weaknesses. I think this is perhaps a more useful way of thinking about it. When we do come across weakness in ourselves, in each other, in our party, criticism facilitates us in investigating it, challenging it, and working on those deficiencies. Each CC meeting, we have a half-hour session at the beginning where a member presents a text, Gives an idea, discusses something going on in the world, something like that. In our last meeting, I want us through a text called Constructive Criticism, a handbook. It's a 70s Maoist text on how to do criticism. And I would really encourage you to take a look at it with your branch, with your mentor, wherever. Criticism does happen in the party. Last Sunday, we had a really positive scrutiny session where members came and asked questions, raised some worries they had, and offered criticism to CC. These sessions are monthly, and I really do encourage you to come along to the next one. But we also can't rely on scrutiny sessions being the only way we communicate criticism. So I just wanted to highlight a few ways you can engage with the Central Committee critically. Firstly, read our reports. Each month we produce action reports on what we've done that month concretely. These get flagged in announcements, so do take the time to read through them. If you see someone who's missing, drop them a message. Chase it. Me and the Deputy Secretaries on CC spend plenty of time chasing reports, ultimately on behalf of the membership. But the more that members yourselves lay out your expectations of our reporting directly to the people that you elected, the better. We're also looking to produce a more qualitative, holistic report as a central committee by the end of this month. CC members have written self-evaluations, which are being responded to by fellow members of the committee, and which will be compiled into a midterm report on how the committee is done and what it needs to achieve by the end of our term. That will go to you once it's completed. Another way you can engage with the central committee is as a branch or a caucus. Recently, South London spent some time going through our reports and compiling questions as a branch. It doesn't have to be for a scrutiny session. Your branch is more than welcome to look at an area of CC work whenever it wants and collectively raise criticisms, questions or ideas. Another way is, as I mentioned, through caucuses. And we've got Aster AE, who is our caucus liaison secretary. So do reach out to them if you're interested in engaging as a caucus. And the last way I'd highlight is just by reaching out to one of us directly. Personally, I'm always really, really keen to hear from members. So if you do have worries about how things are going, generally, specifically, ideas for what the party should or could do, or just generally want to chat, find out what we on the Central Committee think and what we're about, just drop a message to me or to anyone else on the Central Committee at any time. A lot of the Central Committee's last meeting was spent going through member applicant panels. There's not that much more to say this week. If you're a working group applicant, expect to hear back over the next week or so. But for now, I'll hand over to Sean and Angel to cover the situation in Ukraine.
1: Sean, catch us up on Ukraine.
2: Yeah, to eat humble pie, I think we said that it wasn't going to happen. And we are correct to say that it probably wouldn't happen. But, you know, you can't be, you can't be right 100% of the time. Basically, the the key points uh, since we've been gone have started with a basically an end of the ceasefire uh, by Ukraine with their kind of like war on the DPR and the LPR, uh, the two regions in the east of Ukraine. Uh, I can a kind of really, a really quite intensive shelling campaign picked back up uh, that was followed by Putin announcing that Russia would be formally recognising the two of them as independent countries and not as part of Ukraine, which definitely seemed to uh, to spook Ukraine right off the bat. The next thing we know, following a, a pretty high-precision early strike by Russia that basically got rid of the Ukrainian Air Force, it was revealed that, yes, indeed, they had invaded down f- via Belarus, kind of towards Kiev and Chernobyl, um, up going north out of Crimea, and also coming in uh, from the east, going west, coming out of the the DPR and the LPR regions, uh, just kind of going west uh, and southwest to meet up with uh, the rest of them down in Crimea as well. And that uh, yeah, basically takes us up to where we are. You've you've seen the the photos and videos and the maps. There's a pretty sizable chunk of uh, Ukraine no longer. Uh, able to be administered by the ukrainian government at all uh quite a few cities under siege quite a few nuclear power plants no longer belong to ukraine uh the specific re- reason the, um, the nuclear power plants are are kind of like going after in that way is they're usually guarded by military chernobyl uh, especially had a large positively fucking useless uh military detachment that that let every single youtube vlogger through uh so didn't really stand a chance but they yeah, they are um quote unquote um viable targets because of our their, their military presence.
1: Um of course that doesn't mean that um targeting around nuclear or fighting around nuclear plants is is like poses much or any of a risk of something like a meltdown, right? Like that's that's a quite separate thing. You can damage the externals of a of a power plant. Like there's an awful lot of safety features in modern nuclear power plants as well. Um like the real risk is like contamination in terms of like spreading nuclear waste or, or fuel it's not that you're gonna have like a an explosive meltdown
2: but it does make for a good news headline uh,
1: like the the headline saying that Russia had shelled uh,
2: a nuclear power plant uh, and there was uh, fires involved v- very big scary story uh, until you realize that it was uh, a fire uh, in the car park of the admin building
1: yeah um Nothing nothing too frightening in terms of the nuclear, so that's one of the big scaremongering headlines, um, that there's been um, the real stuff, um, like huge number of internally displaced people, um, refugees, numbering in the millions, um, that is in part like a consequence of like a fairly effective evacuation effort in a lot of places.
2: Presumably this has had an effect on, on Nord Stream, right? Like, it can't evolve
1: So, Nord, Nord Stream, as in original Nord Stream, absolutely no change. Gas is still flowing. Gas is still being um, bought. I'm um, not 100% on what currency it's being bought in. I don't know what the exact mechanism is now that Russia's been cut out of SWIFT, because it probably would have been through SWIFT. Um, although Russia's not been completely cut out of SWIFT either touch on that in a second but Nord Stream 2 they have indefinitely delayed the certification of but it was already being delayed until the end of the year until at least the end of the year prior to the invasion so there's not really a major change with either like Nord Stream the original or Nord Stream 2 the, the sequel we're still looking looking pretty much at the same situation however what has happened is like there's really no possibility of gas being transited through ukraine anymore currently and so like the the supply is being choked gas prices are skyrocketing there's been like pressure put on like opec to increase the production of like oil and gas generally um to sort of ease the the market a little bit oil producing countries are not against high prices (laughs) they do quite well at high prices but the problem is if the prices are too high then people are going to stop purchasing there's a number of like manufacturing processes that are dependent on natural gas specifically so not just on energy of particular importance are the production of fertilizers depends a lot on natural gas and uh, a lot of like metal manufacturing processes especially you know aluminium steel so knock-on effects to to transport generally, not just from the cost of fuel, but from like the cost of like vehicles. Production of vehicles has already been massively disrupted by just like the general COVID supply chain disruptions and chip shortages and things um, anyway, so that's getting even worse. Skyrocketing household bills from the the price of of natural gas. There are increasing like gas that um, people are buying for like to heat their homes in the US and things. Is becoming unaffordable there because the US is shipping so much out to other countries um, because of how high the demand is, particularly in Europe. So, like, there's been like like protectionists in the US calling for like shipments of gas away from the US to be like like stopped until the domestic market can be like satisfied. There was diplomats sent to Venezuela, Sean.
2: A very interesting uh, term of events. Literally, have come crawling back. Uh, not a lot seems to have come of it. Notably, uh, two two U.S. citizens uh, well, he- held in Venezuela as prisoners um, were released, but there, there doesn't really seem to be any doesn't seem to be any reason why it did it did follow the talks. So whether or not it was uh, it happened because of them or not is uh, not exactly clear. But it doesn't look like Venezuela got anything out of it. Which um, you know, I'm not I'm not Maduro, but I I don't know. I wouldn't be asking for nothing right now.
1: Similar vein to that is uh, like I saw headlines like Qatar stepping in to like host some kind of mediation between Iran and the US as well. And um, so it seems like the US is kind of like whipping around all the oil producing Russian allies <laughs> to, to maybe see if they can like split them off of Russia or get them to set them up as competitors to Russia, I suppose. Like because at the moment there's a market for the LNG that that Russia can't satisfy by itself because it's sanctioned.
2: That does seem to be the way they, they do they do feel like they they can take take the foot uh, off the accelerator a bit and let them let, let well in their eyes let these countries thrive a little bit uh, in in a very very specific way that they that the US would allow. Um, but again, it doesn't doesn't really seem like there's much much appetite for it.
1: No, like I mean. If you're Iran or Venezuela right, are you going to be like, oh, maybe the U.S. is not full of shit this
2: time? Yeah, yeah, you don't, you don't, you don't buy it. Like you, you don't believe it. Which I guess is the long way to say that uh, the U.S.'s efforts to try and mitigate this uh, energy crisis uh, will not work. Uh, it's, there's simply no no current solution to make it easily go away.
1: Yeah, prices will continue to climb until either Russian supplies can be restored or until there's a, a like a, just an economic collapse Um, like that's kind of the the two forks There's not really a situation where the US can produce enough gas there's not really a situation where like other competing countries can or will produce enough gas um and certainly not at the price point that's necessary. I did want to like, chat briefly about like a couple factors on the war itself it's a bit of an open question whether we are looking at like what's termed an inter-imperialist conflict in which one of the imperialists is russia and an inter-imperialist conflict where you're looking at like the splits between europe and america playing out over ukraine and russia some people point to the, like the level of concentration of capital in in Russia in, in terms of like the proportion of its GDP, something like I think it was in the region of 40% of the GDP is in the top 10 companies. That's not very unusual for capitalism anywhere. And if you look at like the overall size of the Russian GDP, it's a, like it's about the same size as Mexico, which no one is really arguing at the moment is an imperialist country. But we also have to recognize that like, like russia was a a weak imperialist power before the soviet revolution and like like it has had the potential there but like the the rest of the world kind of moved on (laughs) during that period um samurai amin talks about like five monopolies um which are like control of technology which like intellectual property and things russia is up there on the number like the the annual number of patents granted but they're like um, I think there's something like eighth in the world in the last year, the last couple of years they place about their, they're about part like parity with like India on that kind of thing. Also, like something that they have in common with India and another of the five monopolies that some women identifies is like possession of weapons of mass destruction. So that, like that's a factor too. Like the fact that unlike Libya after denuclearization, or like most other countries that don't have nuclear weapons, like where the imperialists can just go and bomb them to smithereens without facing an equivalent threat and so that that gives Russia more room to maneuver Um, I guess the other thing to to like recognize it like imperialism is the inherent trend of capitalism in the actual world you know there is not a capitalist country that is not either like either tending towards becoming imperialist or just being increasingly exploited by the imperialists Russia doesn't have much in the way of like manufacturing compared to countries like china especially compared to like in in terms of like ownership like europe the us most of russian capital is in like raw materials which kind of puts them in a similar position to like a lot of african countries in terms of where their capital comes from or a lot of like venezuela iran that kind of um like where they're principally kind of being exploited for raw materials rather than like value added by labour which i think is a key sorry i should say value added by labour in the manufacturing process obviously extraction of raw, like, raw materials is labour intensive as well Um, the importance of manufacture to the like to what makes finance capital finance capital can't be understated either so i it, um i don't feel i can weigh conclusively on the question one way or another but what i would say is it like for us in britain which is without question an imperialist country uh, a part of the nato alliance without question an imperialist alliance um the dominant imperial power in the world like it doesn't matter very much whether we conclude russia's imperialist or whether we conclude russia's not imperialist or whether we come up with some kind of semi feudal semi imperialist type <laughs> um like judgement like the the point is that like we we're we're looking for nato to be dealt defeats we're looking to turn the war to our advantage at, at home in terms of like the destruction of our own bourgeoisie and this is a, a hypothetical if because the reality is that it is if russia is dealing greater blows to nato's imperialism greater blows to british imperialism than we're managing to like it's just it's just not important for us to be opposing that compared to to like the fight that we've that we've got to develop and um, Domestically,
2: they, they certainly uh, gave a bigger blow in Syria uh, and they are doing it now uh, towards J- J-
1: J- NATO in general, NATO's plans, NATO's interests. Syria is a fantastic example, right? Because what actually the majority of the organised or, or semi organised quote unquote left in Britain was doing with Syria was sending people to go and fight on behalf of NATO against the Assad government. <laughs>
0: Thanks, comrades. Before we go, I just want to talk a little bit about our local election strategy. In April, we'll be looking to launch our leaflet campaigns on the ground, so it's essential that branches who are opting into the strategy are getting ready. By next week, we'll have some guidance written up for how to get leafleting, how to pull your public events together and so on. So please make sure you have a look at this as soon as it's up. By the beginning of April, we want our branches ready to receive leaflets and get to work distributing them. As ever, if you have any questions or thoughts about the local election strategy, talk to your rep on the working group or drop me a message on comms. That's it for this week. Thank you so much. Catch you next time.